Amen. And as you're seated, take your Bible and get your sermon notes ready and get your pen ready. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers are going to come down the aisle. Uh, and we love to pass out Bibles at our church. If you want one, just raise your hand if you want a Bible that you can use today. If you don't have a Bible, this one's yours. Keep it. Put your name in it. Take it home. Read it. Bring it back with you next week. We've passed out more than 500 Bibles um, at our church since we began just a little more than two years ago. So if you need one, grab one, pull out your notes. We should have given you a pen. Um, and I love to read the Bible. And I read this week a very weird verse um, in the Bible. I was studying in Ezekiel chapter 3. You don't have to turn there. But in Ezekiel chapter 3, Ezekiel was an Old Testament prophet of God, and he was called to ministry. And I'm reading this year in the New American Standard version of the Bible, which I've never read before. And Ezekiel describes the start of his ministry like this. He said, embittered with rage in my spirit, I began my ministry. And I read that, and I thought, man, that sounds really harsh. Like, that, that may be the worst possible way to begin ministry. Embittered in the rage of my spirit, I began my ministry. And I thought, Lord, what, like, what does that mean? So I went down in my study note, and I got some commentaries. And basically, I learned that what Ezekiel was feeling was what I was feeling when we set out to, to begin Journey Church International. And here's what it means to be embittered with rage in your spirit. Ezekiel was fed up. Ezekiel was fed up with the way that things were going. Ezekiel was fed up with the way that things had been done. And it had put such a burning desire in him to do something differently that he described the feeling as being embittered with rage in his spirit. He, he was on a mission to do something different. Now, maybe when you were kids, for those of you who are my age or older, um, you watched the cartoon Popeye. Does anyone remember Popeye? And, you know, his girl, Olive Oil, and Brutus, uh, his arch nemesis. And you remember Popeye used to eat what to feel strong? Used to eat his spinach. And I think they, that was just propaganda to get kids to eat vegetables who were watching that back then. But if you remember, Popeye would put up with Brutus or something Brutus was doing for so long until he couldn't stand it anymore. And if you remember, Popeye would use this phrase. He'd say, I can't stand it no more. I can't stand it no more. And he would take that that spinach and he would pop the can open and he would drink it and his arms would blow up and his chest would blow up and he'd go do something about it. That's where Ezekiel was. He couldn't stand it no more. And when we began to formulate a plan for Journey Church International, there was some things that, that we couldn't stand about church as we knew it the first 30 years of our life. Uh, I couldn't stand the organized religion feel of church. I couldn't stand the thought that, that I felt like I was supposed to be at church all day, every day, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, Tuesday morning, men's ministry, Friday morning prayer. I, just, I felt like the, the, the church never let me have a free hour in my life. I felt like the church uh, is, that I grew up in from high school all the way into my 30s was more concerned about the church growing than about people growing spiritually. I felt like churches use volunteers and then they burned out and then they just cast them aside and use more until they burned out without really ever appreciating them well. And I struggled that the, that the American church, not a single church, but that the American church as a whole was taking in so much money and giving so little away. So when we started our church embittered with rage in our spirit with this can't stands it no more attitude, we said our church, we don't know if anyone will come, we don't know if anyone will stay but if we have a church, here are going to be the things that we value the most. And we started our church with four core values. One of them was simplicity. 
we're going to realize that people are really busy and we have to connect them to Jesus on their timetable. And we can't ask for 12, 15, 20 hours of their week. We need to have a simple plan for people to grow spiritually. We need to focus on people's spiritual growth, not the church's growth numerically. On Sunday mornings, we need to shape Sunday so that people are growing spiritually, not so our church can grow numerically. We need to radically appreciate everyone who's serving because we can't do church without them. And we never want to, uh, uh, ha um, um, we never want to grow an experience of entitlement where we get mad at our volunteers because we feel like this is what they should do. We should always want to think of our volunteers as what they're willing to do, not what they have to do. And we said we were going to be a church that practiced generosity. We said we were going to be a church that because we took in, we were going to give out. And we were not just going to talk about giving, but we were going to be a giving church. And if you were to ask me what the greatest impact of our churches has been um, the last two years, I would say it's these values and the way we've worked to appreciate people. We're not perfect, but we're purposed. We try to do a good job. I would say it's in the spiritual growth that people are seeing through a church that offers a pretty simple way to get engaged and grow spiritually. And I would say probably the greatest blessings of our church and the greatest ministry of our church has been not what we've taken in, but what we've given away, our generosity. And as we begin a six-week series on generosity this week, it's my goal as a pastor. I feel like a lot of these things we've driven deep into the DNA of our church. We know that spiritual growth is important. We talk about spiritual next steps all the time. We we do spring carnivals and fall Christmas parties, and we this just today we're doing our quarterly volunteer treat. Does anyone have one of those quarterly volunteer treats? Bring one of those up here, Danielle. So we, we've got hundreds of these little bags full of stuff for our volunteers um, that just say JCI volunteers or MVPs and just little stuff, a little bottle of Gatorade and a snack and a football and a little football helmet and a little clapper thing that's going to drive Pastor Jason nuts because all the kids are going to use it. Here, Christian, can you catch that? Um, in the kids' ministry, but we're constantly trying to do things to say thank you. But I feel like one value that we hold as a church, but we've not tried to drive into individuals is this value of generosity, is this value of living to give instead of living to receive. In Acts chapter 20, the Apostle Paul says something interesting to us. If you have your Bible, I want you to go to Acts chapter 20. If you have a red letter Bible, um, you say, what's a red letter Bible? The red letter Bible is a Bible where everything that Jesus says is in red letters. If you have a red letter Bible, or maybe you've seen one of these, you're going to find a lot of things in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that are red because that's when Jesus is alive. One of the only red letter sections of the Bible not written about Jesus' life specifically is Acts chapter 20. Because Paul quotes Jesus as saying something that we don't see in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. But because Paul attributes it to him, because Paul lived at the same time, we know Jesus said it. And Jesus said something about this culture of generosity that as a church we want to have and experience and that we want to celebrate. Now the Apostle Paul says this in Acts chapter 20, verses 32 through 35. Paul says, now I commit you to God... And the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I've not covered, I've not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourself know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words of the Lord Jesus, who himself said, it's more blessed to give than receive. Now, I want you to underline that in your Bible. Or if it's on your sermon notes, I want you to underline it on your sermon notes. Or I, I want you to make note of it if you're 
following along on your tablet or your phone, Jesus said, and Paul reminded the people in Acts chapter 20, we always need to be reminded that it's always more blessed to give than to receive. Now, I want you to know that I believe that on Christmas morning. Uh, And I believe that when I'm celebrating somebody and I have enough money to do that. But we don't live in a culture that, um, that has embraced that thought as a philosophy of life. We're kind of like the monkeys in India. Perhaps you've heard of how decades ago they learned to catch monkeys in India. Uh, um, um, an Indian hunter in the jungles of India found out that the easiest way to catch a monkey, he found this out by accident one day watching monkeys in the wild, is he would take a coconut and he would bore a hole in the coconut just large enough for a monkey to squeeze their hand into And on the inside, he would put fruit and nuts, and he would tie a rope to the end of that coconut. And monkeys, by nature, are selfish creatures. If you ever go to a zoo, watch them fight over stuff that they have. It's a lot of fun to do. And he found out the easiest way to catch a monkey was to put something inside this coconut. So he created a hole small enough for their hand to get into, and they would put it in. And when they made a fist to try to pull it out, they couldn't get their hand out. And he found out that he could, on the end of a rope, He could literally walk a monkey all the way back to him and kill it because they would not let go of what they had in their hand because it was theirs. And they would rather die than give up what was theirs. Now, you look at the American culture today, and it seems that we have a similar problem. You know, financial stress and pressure is the number one cause of divorce in America. More people get divorced because of the stress of finances than over marital infidelity. It's easy to stay married through your spouse having an affair than it is through financial pressure. The number one cause of suicide in the adult population is financial pressure. One of the number one causes of all the anxiety medication that is prescribed today in the United States of America is financial stress and pressure. And if you just look at our government fighting over money today, it appears that there are a lot of people in our culture who would rather die hanging on to what they have than be willing to, as the the title of our message is today, than be willing to live open-handed so that that they could actually experience life. What we're going to experience the next six weeks according to Scripture is this thought, that open-handed living, if you look up generosity in the dictionary, one of the synonyms is open-handed. It's It's that not everything that's mine is mine. I live open-handed. I'm willing to give and take at the same time. Open-handed living, according to Scripture, allows you to radically give to God and radically receive from God. Open-handed living allows you to radically give to God and it allows you to radically receive from God. And this, I I want you to know, this next six weeks is not just going to be about our church asking for your money. We're trying to build culture. We're trying to build DNA. We're trying to change a mindset that says everything God has given me, a lot of it, He's given to me to impact the world around me. And here will be the journey that we'll take spiritually. Today we're going to talk about open-handed living. How do you adopt a mindset that you don't have to hold on to everything even if it kills you? Next week we're going to look at understanding our next step in giving the generosity ladder. In 2 Corinthians 8, 7, the Apostle Paul says, I want you to excel in this grace of giving. The word grace in the Greek is the word charis. It's actually the word gift. I want you to excel in this gift of giving. One of the gifts God has given to us is the gift to give. But Paul, like everything else spiritually, Paul said, I need to teach you how to do this. And it happens in baby steps, one step at a time. I want to show you where you are in your generosity journey. 
and according to the Bible, what your next step can be or should be and what the ultimate step is. October 27th, we're going to look at how we live in the blessing zone. When we give, we bless others. When we give like God wants us to give, we bless ourselves, which is a really, it's an odd paradox, but it's something that the Bible teaches. On November 3, we're going to celebrate Global Impact Sunday. So for three weeks, we're going to talk about our culture of generosity. And then for three weeks, we're going to show you how our generosity blesses the world. The founders of the mission that we support in Africa and Kenya and Sudan is going to be here. Uh, it's, it's a mom and a dad. Their names are uh, Frank and Jan Harrison. Their son uh, went to the mission field, short-term mission trip to Africa, enjoyed it so much that he asked his mom and dad if he could stay over there for six months because uh, he saw that there were needs that no one was aware of, and he wanted to found a ministry called With Open Eyes. He said, I just want people's eyes to be open to what's happening over there. He asked his mom and dad if he could stay for six months, and he died in Africa of malaria before they could get him home because he was in such a remote village. Instead of shunning the thing that took their son, they said, let's celebrate his legacy and let's, let's, um, let's invest in this rather than rejecting it. And I'm going to read you a letter of what's going on there in just a minute. They'll be here November 3rd to tell us their story, to tell us about their ministry. And then next fall, we'll take a mission trip of 15 to, to 18 people from our church to Kenya and the Sudan to serve with them. And we'll say, when we give, here's what happens in Africa. On November 10th, we're going to talk about church planning because we, every time we take an offering, we give back to church planners like us who are just getting ready to start their church, and we're going to see generosity up close. What happens in a church that we're supporting that's getting ready to launch off the ground? Then November 17th, I'm going to talk to you about why it's so hard to give, and I'm just going to talk to you about my personal journey of what I had to personally overcome just in my spirit, in my finances, in my family, in my security, in my identity to be able to give God what he asked for. So that's going to be our journey. But today it starts with living open-handed. And here's what we realize about open-handed living. Open-handed living has to be a mindset before it's a reality. Has to be something we want to do. Has to be something we believe in. Has to be something we think is important. Has to be something we celebrate. And it has to be something we're willing to sacrifice for. Uh, before our church started, we said we're going to exist in generosity and we're going to give, at the time we started, we said we're going to give the first 10% of everything that comes in away. And we had been collecting offerings since January of 2011, but our church didn't start until September of 2011. And I was meeting with someone and I had a kind of opposing voices in my head. I met with someone who said, listen, you don't want to start giving anything away until you have church because you don't have enough money yet. And then I was meeting with other people that said, listen, if you don't start giving now, you'll never give because you're... Right now, you have the fewest bills you'll ever have. And if you're not willing to give 10% of what came in before your church started, it's going to be really hard once your church has started. And I prayed, and I said, Lord, what do we do? And in July of 2011, three months before we started our church, I, I just felt like it was time for us to give. And I contacted our Africa ministry, and I said, we feel like we're supposed to give our first $5,000 away. What do you guys need $5,000 for? And they said, Christian, we have pastors right now who have been trained, who are waiting for a fleet of bicycles. We've actually got 40 bicycles on back order. We've got these guys who have to walk sometimes 50 miles one way to a village. And it's very difficult for them to do ministry because if they can't get there in one day, it's dangerous just to stay all night in the open square. So they said, if you could sow this gift into us, um, we could buy bicycles for these guys and they could begin to do their ministry. So three months before our church started, we said, if this is our mindset, it's got to become our reality. And we sent, before we'd ever collected a public offering as a church that wouldn't start for 90 days, we sent the biggest check we had ever written as a church away and said, God, here you go. 
A few months later, they sent us back pictures of these bicycles that had arrived in Africa. And they said, here's the first fleet of bicycles that have arrived. And then they sent us another picture. Here's the next fleet of bicycles that have arrived. And then they sent us another picture of the pastors who used them. And they said, here's the pastors who have been trained. All of these guys got a bicycle because your church gave. And this is a letter I got in the mail from them. We've been giving to them every month since our church has existed. And here's the letter I got today just from our monthly gift. Your partnership, this is written to our church, not me. Your partnership is a tremendous catalyst in our efforts to equip the incredible work of pastors that we call mobile messengers and celebrate the life-saving message of hope to the unreached people through East Africa. Listen now, I told you our greatest ministries happen through our generosity. Join us in celebrating in the last three years over 42,000 salvations, 182 churches planted, 171 pastors mobilized with transportation in just two and a half years. This includes five new churches planted and nearly 8,000 salvations this past month. A new mobile messenger in Rwanda shared this. The Lord has been so gracious to us. After getting our bicycles, we felt to work for the Lord as we were eliminating malaria in our villages. We prayed and each one of us took his bike and started going from one village to another in two sectors. The Lord granted us favor and saved 364 people in one area, while in the second area, 465 came to Jesus as well. Thanks for helping us move faster by offering bicycles to our team. These guys are going where the name of Jesus has never been mentioned. They're, they're going to places in Africa that don't have Bibles or languages in their Bible, and they're going faster because of generosity. See, when generosity is your mindset, one day it becomes your reality and ministry gets done. And what we have learned at our church, because we don't know that we'll ever have enough money to feel like we don't need anymore and we should just give it all away, but open-handed living is all, always more about your heart than your money. The spirit in the DNA that I want to push in our church today has nothing to do with your bank account today. It has nothing to do with your ability to give today. It has nothing to do if you've ever given today or you can't give for a decade. It's all about your heart of saying, I want to join in a cause greater than myself and live open-handed. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21, Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and... and where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moths and vermin don't destroy and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So today I want to talk to your heart. Today I don't want to talk to your wallet. Today I don't want to check to your, talk to your, your, your checkbook. Today I don't want to talk to your bank. I just want to talk to your heart. I want to teach you today biblically how to have a mindset of generosity and open-handed living so that you can begin to shape your life to live open-handed in a way that hanging on to money doesn't kill you and so that releasing actually brings life to others. So what do we learn about open-handed living? First and foremost, if we're going to live open-handed and live well that way, we have to first see ourselves as receivers. Before we can see ourselves as givers, we have to see ourselves as receivers. Do you see... The things that come to you as things that have been given to you or things that are yours because you've worked hard and you have earned them. Are you a, are you a receiver? Is, do you feel like God's giving to you or that what you have is yours? In James 1.17, God says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights who doesn't change like shifting shadows. So James says, Everything you have, you've received. A healthy spiritual mindset is to see yourself as a receiver. You know, I, I, uh, I was talking with one of the businessmen in our church this week who was talking about a new employee that they have working for them. And he said, I've never had an employee like this that every time he gets paid, he thanks me 
profusely. And there's this thought that, well, obviously he recognizes the money is coming from you. But how many of us, when we get a paycheck, thank God profusely? Because we believe that he's the source of it. That's James 1.17. Everything that comes into your hand is ultimately from God. God uses people with generous spirits, but it's ultimately from God. In 1 Timothy 6, verse 17, Paul says this, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. So the thought of Scripture is that we have what we have because God gave it to us. Why? Because He wants us to enjoy it. God gave us money to enjoy it, not just to give it. But He wants us to see ourselves as receivers of what He has blessed us with. Now, here's the thought of someone who has received from God but doesn't recognize God as, as the, the gifter of those things. A few years ago, um, we bought our son Christian uh, a DS, for uh, a Nintendo DS. For Christmas, those of you who are parents, you know what that is. That's kind of the, the most updated Game Boy, and I'm sure they have something else now. And I wasn't much of a video gamer in, in high school or college. Like I told you, the only video game I know how to play is the original Nintendo, like like the original Nintendo AB, up, down, sideways, like the new ones with all the buttons. I don't know. I knew how to play Mario Brothers. I did a little bit of Duck Hunt back in the day, uh, way before Duck Dynasty. I was killing ducks on my TV, um, and, and, I pl- and I played a lot of Tech Mobile, probably more Tech Mobile than any Christian should play in a, in a given uh, amount of time. But when we got Christian this Nintendo DS, the first game they had was the original old-school Mario Brothers. And I thought, you know, as, as I'm getting this gift ready for Christmas, I kind of broke it out, and I thought, I wonder how good I am. At my, yeah, I wonder if I can still save the princess. And I started playing this thing, and like it just became addicting to me, you know. So like I'm sitting up on Christmas Eve playing this thing all night long before we're going to throw it under the tree. And then he opens it, and I'm trying to show him how to play it. And all that Christmas break, I kept saying, um, like, can, can I, like, can I play? Uh, can I, you know, he's got his new Christmas gift. And I'm like, well, why don't you let me show you how to do that? And I, I think I can save the princess in one man. And I can show you how to jump on the turtle and get 100 lives. And I kept saying, you know, let me play, let me play, let me play. And he kept saying, Dad, it's mine, Dad, it's mine, Dad, it's mine. And I thought, son, I got it for you. Technically, it's mine. I mean, I'm letting you use it, but technically, it's mine. You have received this from me. Now go to bed. Like, go to your room. You're grounded. Give me the video game. That was the spirit. How many of us that our immediate reaction is when we hear a pastor or we hear scripture or we hear anyone talk about giving, we say, wait a minute, that's mine. Don't talk about my money. Don't talk about my video games. Don't talk about my investments. Don't talk about what I have earned. This is mine. We often are like little kids that forget where it came from. And God doesn't, he doesn't want to take our video game. Just every now and then, he wants us to be willing to share it. You know, Timothy was commanded, command those who are rich in this present world. Say, Christian, if I was rich, I would give. Do you know if you earn more than $2 a day, you're in the top percent, top 2% of wage earners globally? Let me say that again. If you earn more than $2 a day, you're in the top 2% of wage earners globally. Do you know that if you make, on average, $25,000 a year from age 25 to age 65, that you will make a million dollars in your life? You know, the average American will make a million dollars in their life. And we always say, you know, if I was rich, listen, by the world standard, we're the richest people who have ever lived. If you just look in ancient history, 
Now, we, we might not be as rich as Warren Buffett or Bill Gates, but according to the world standard, we're the richest people who have ever lived. And Paul says, commend people who have wealth. That, that's us. If we have heating and air conditioning and we have drinking water, we're wealthy by the world standard. Command them not just to use everything for their good, but command them to live open-handed. See yourself as a receiver. Secondly, after we see ourselves as a receiver, we must see ourselves as a steward. Now, this is, a, this is a weird word that we don't use a whole lot in our culture today. We don't even use the word on airplanes anymore, stewardess. They're, they're flight attendants. Um, but a steward is basically somebody who's a manager. If you want to s- skip the two verses there and go ahead and fill in your, steward, uh, fill in your sermon notes. A steward is a manager. There's someone who manages someone else's business, possessions, money, property, um, whatever. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, Peter says, Each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. So everything you've been given, it's your, now, it's your responsibility now to manage that, not only for your enjoyment, but to help others. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 18 and 19, continuing the thought of command those who are wealthy to give, he says, command them also to do good and to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they'll lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. So when we see ourselves as a steward, when we see ourselves as a manager, we think, I've been gifted with all this stuff. I've been gifted with all all these resources. I've been gifted with all this ability. I've been gifted to live where I live, to, to do good deeds, to serve others, And to be generous with with what I have because when I do that, I actually live a better life than if I didn't do that. I live the life that is really life when I serve others and when I'm willing to be generous with what I have. So I read this week in a book that every, everyone, every Christian should ask themselves these three questions about the money that's been entrusted to us. Whether you're 20 or 60 or 70 or 80, three questions to ask yourself about the money entrusted to you or maybe that you'll ask yourself, When you're laying on your deathbed one day, where did it all go? Listen, man, I ask that money like like halfway through every pay period, right? Where did it all go? Like, where's the money? Number two, what did I spend it on? Where did it all go? If the average American in our culture where we live is going to make a million dollars over a lifetime, where does all that go? What do we spend that on? And what has been accomplished for eternity through the use of all this wealth? And we should call it what it is because it's what they call it on the other six continents not named North America. It's wealth. We're very wealthy by the world standards. What did, what did I do with what I have to impact eternity? See, the world's financial advice says this, work hard and live well. The Apostle Paul's financial advice to the Ephesians was this, work hard and give well. The world says, work hard, live well. You deserve it. Paul says to the Ephesians, work hard and give well. Because the fact is this, money makes a terrible God, but it makes a wonderful servant. Money makes a terrible God. When you're controlled by money, that's a a hard God to serve. But it makes a great servant. 
man, it is great to use money to bless others. It is great to use money to help others. It is great to pour money into causes like guys in Africa who all they need is a bicycle to go from one place to another. So we've upgraded from buying bicycles. Now we buy motorcycles for the the guys who take the 500-mile trips. And some of you with me, a year from now, some of us are going to be in Africa. And we're going to be hanging out with these guys riding bicycles all over. And we're going to say, man, like, how do we invest more here in this ministry? So we have to see ourselves as receivers. We have to see ourselves as stewards. And then third, we have to begin to believe the impact of our life is as much in what we give as what we use. We have to believe that the final impact of our life is as much in what we give as in what we use. So there's three things you can do with money that all of us can do with money. You can spend it. And we all do that. We should do that. Scripture says God gave us money for our enjoyment. We should spend it. That little dude in the back just said amen. I mean, he's like all about that. He's like, buy me a pacifier. Um, we, can, we can save it. We can save it. We should do that. If we're wise, Scripture tells us in Proverbs that we should save. We should not spend everything we get. But then number three, we can share it. These are the three things we can do with money. We can spend it, and we do. We can save it, and we do. We can share it, and I believe this church does and does well. And a lot of people hear this message and say, Christian, man, I agree with all that. But what God has shown me about agreeing with something without doing it is heart without habit equals hypocrisy. Oh, yes, I believe that. Do you do it? No. Then you're either lying or you're a hypocrite. Because saying you have a heart for something without developing a habit for something is hypocrisy. According to James, in James chapter 2, who says, Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but he doesn't do anything about their physical needs, what good is it? So we have a certain way of thinking about people who give versus thinking about people who we perceive as taking. We view the salvation and the... Salvation Army in the United Way differently than we view the IRS, right? I mean, it's just we see one as a as a we see one as as generous, we see one as greedy. When God looks at your life, does He see gener- generosity or greed? Uh, you know, my kids um, and our neighbors constantly play in our street. Like if you've ever driven down. Our road in the Eagle Creek subdivision we live in, there's there's always kids, which is crazy. We've got this green space in the back that's got to be 10 or 15 acres, and they always want to play in the front yard by the street and where the trees are and on the sidewalks and driveways, but that's that's where they play. And every now and then, they like to play Foursquare, and they'll knock a ball kind of down the street, and it'll, it'll hit kind of the gutter in the side of the road, and it'll roll to like one of the storm drains where you wonder if it's going to get swept away. And I still never approach a storm drain without looking for a man-eating clown living in that storm drain because when I was in middle school, I saw a movie called It by Stephen King. I don't recommend watching that movie if you've not seen it, but Stephen King has like the scariest mind that's ever been invented, and he, he created a movie about a clown who lived in the gutters, and he would eat little kids when their four square balls went down. And so it's like, leave the ball! You know, like you see a kid running, and no! He's going to get eaten by a clown. I mean, it's just, it's scary. And I still, to this day, you know, I'll, I'll, like, I'll check twice. I won't look in the mirror at midnight because I saw Candyman, and I won't look in a storm drain because there's a clown down there. 
just little phobias I carry around. And I don't like to go in the ocean because I saw Jaws. I mean, that is just, that's why you shouldn't watch movies. But this freaky-minded Stephen King in 2001 was speaking at the graduation ceremony of Vassar College. And he said these words, I read them, and I thought, there's no way Stephen King could say that, because, like, this guy's messed up. But this was his commencement speech, part of his commencement speech from Vassar College in 2001. And I actually wrote it down, and it's going to be on the screen behind me so you can track with me. But here's what Stephen King said a few years ago about living with generosity. He said, a couple years ago, I found out what you can't take it with you means. I found out while I was lying in a ditch at the side of a country road covered with mud and blood, and with the tibia of my right leg poking out the side of my jeans like a branch of a tree taken down in a thunderstorm. I had a MasterCard in my wallet, but when you're lying in a ditch with broken glass in your hair, no one accepts MasterCard. We all know that life is ephemeral, but on that particular day, and in the months that followed, I got a painful but extremely valuable look at life's simple backstage truths. We come in naked and broke. We may be dressed when we go out, but we're just as broke. Warren Buffett going out broke. Bill Gates going out broke. Tom Hanks going out broke. Steve King broke. Not a crying dime. All the money you earn, all the stocks you buy, all the mutual funds you trade, all of that is mostly smoke and mirrors. It's still going to be a quarter past getting late whether you tell the time on a Timex or a Rolex. No matter how large your bank account, no matter how many credit cards you have, sooner or later things will begin to go wrong with the only three things that you can really call your own, your body, your spirit, and your mind. So I want you to consider making your life one long gift to others. And why not? All you have is on loan anyway. All that lasts is what you pass on. We have the power to help, the power to change. And why should we refuse? Because we're going to take it with us? Please. Giving is a way of taking the focus off the money we make and putting it back where it belongs on the lives we lead, the families we raise, the communities that nurture us. A life of giving, not just money, but time and spirit repays It helps us remember that we may be going out broke, but right now we're doing okay. Right now we have the power to do great good for others and for ourselves, so I ask you to begin giving and to continue as you begin. I think I'll find in the end, I think you'll find in the end that you got far more than you ever had and you did more good than you ever dreamed. Stephen King to the graduating class of Vassar College 2001. Randy Alcorn says it this way, our stewardship of our money and our possessions becomes the story of our lives. And what I find so interesting is that we live in a community that literally is defined by one of the greatest givers, one of the most generous men who has ever lived. His name was R.A. Long. He lived at Longview Farm. That was his home. And he was one of the most wealthy Christian businessmen of his day. And when you drive around Kansas City, you don't see much of R.A. Long, but you see a lot that he left, like the 146 acres that his two daughters gave to Longview Community College to start. Not very many people know that the man who created Longview is the man who built the Liberty Memorial after World War I so that World War I veterans would be celebrated all over America. The current UMB Bank building in downtown Kansas City, one of the famous, most famous buildings in Kansas City, was once the R.A. Long building where his lumber business did work. And some of you live on his old 2,000-acre farm. He was known for how he gave. And the truth is he's now only remembered by what he gave. We don't know his name, but we see the legacy he left and what he gave away. Now, some of you are like me. 
you, you didn't grow up where you currently live. And I love to go home again. I grew up in the woods of southern Ohio. And I love to go home because when you, when you grow up in a small redneck town in southern Ohio, a lot of what you do, you do yourself. And when I go home and I take my wife and I take my kids, I like to talk to them about the parts of me that are still there. Uh, I drive by the street that I used to live on and I point out the houses that I painted one summer that are still painted that color. See that house right there? I painted that house. See that house right there? I painted that house. I take them down the roads. I work for two and a half summers uh, road construction with our county. And I drive them down these back roads. And I say, see that guardrail right there? I put that guardrail in. See this pavement here? I, I pave this road that we're driving. I like to show them what we left behind at our little poor broke school. I remember when we put the fence up around our baseball field and our baseball team went and built bullpen mounts because we didn't have those. And, and I go out on the field and anytime I'm there with someone, I say, hey, see that over there? We, we built that over there. And it's funny that the story of our life becomes what we left behind, not what we currently have. It's the joy that we have, and it's the legacy that we leave. Which is why Jesus said in Acts chapter 20, remember, don't ever forget, it's always more blessed to give than receive. My goal for our church is that we will be a church that one day when this church doesn't exist, when I'm gone, you're gone, we're all gone, maybe we've, maybe we've built a building and we've left a spiritual footprint and maybe a hundred years from now that building has been paid off and donated to the city of Lee Summit for some great use for education or kids sports or something that would be wonderful. Maybe they'll remember our church, not for who we were, but for what we gave. But the question is, can we be a generous church if we're not filled with generous individuals? So my question to you today in the next six weeks is will you go on this generosity journey with me? Will you begin to believe you are who God says you are spiritually and you've been given what God says you've been given for a particular reason? And would you begin to learn, here's who I am, here's who I could be, and will you take this generosity journey with me and our church so that one day we're buying bicycles and the next day we're buying motorcycles and the next day we're building churches in Africa and one day we're supporting orphans and then the next day we're building orphanages and one day we're going on trips to Israel and then the next day we have a church in Israel. Can, can we, if we would expand our generosity, can we expand our ministry? I, I think everyone would say yes, but it has to begin in one heart and one person at one point in time and putting together a great plan to move forward, which is what we're going to try to do the next few weeks. Would you pray with me?